0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord Jesus, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. Let the light of your face shine upon me, watch over me, lead me, and guide me, that with you evermore I shall be, world without end, amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. This morning, we talked about kind of this narrative, like our story with our Lord, the story we tell, the story he tells, and how our story is the same story that's revealed to us in Scripture. And then at Mass, we had a chance to reflect on Mary's experience and Mary's identity, both as like the daughter of Zion and as the mother of the church. And so this afternoon, I want to focus on like two moments of that story, that story of salvation, this moment of kind of original sin and distortion and this moment of like the cross and redemption So my favorite Pope Benedict quote, which I use every time I talk, is about the image of God. And he says, the real God is by his very nature, entirely being for, like the Father is for the Son, being from, the Son is from the Father, and being with, the Holy Spirit is sort of with the Father and the Son. Man, for his part, is God's image, precisely insofar as the from, with, and for constitute the fundamental anthropological pattern. So within the persons of the Trinity, there's these relations. And they're very specific and very unique within the persons. And so the Father's relation is to be for the Son. That means everything about the Father is this act of gift this outpouring of love, this sacrificial love that's ordered to the good of the son. So the way the father loves the son is to want the good for him. The son's relation to the father is to be from the father. It's kind of the response when somebody wants the good for us. And if I know that somebody loves me, that they want the good for me, that they might even know my good better than I know my good, my response to them would be to entrust myself to them. Right? To entrust myself means I'm going to give myself to you, but I'm going to give myself into your hands. I'm going to give myself into your care. I'm going to allow you to take care of me. I'm going to allow you to know me fully. I could turn off my brain and let you make all my decisions for the rest of the day and I'm confident that my life is going to be better at the end of the day than it was at the beginning. Right? How many people can we say that about? Like, can we actually say that about our Lord? Because if we're honest, that's the hardest thing any of us does is to entrust our hearts to another person. to be sure that they're trustworthy. The Holy Spirit is the bond of love between the Father and the Son that is its own person, this sort of being with them both, and represents a kind of interdependent love. And so we're God's image insofar as we have those three movements of love in our own lives, that we're a son or a daughter who entrusts ourselves completely to our parent or our Lord, that we're with another. We're, we experience that in sibling relationships and friendships and friendships that become marriages, that interdependent kind of love. It's not all one way or it's not all the other. And those of you who have been called to the vocation of marriage, like that being with becomes a being for relation when you have children and you love them in a sacrificial way. And that pattern matters. So Pope Benedict goes on to say, Whenever we attempt to free ourselves from the pattern, we're not on our way to divinity, but to dehumanization. Right? Freeing ourselves from the pattern, what does it look like? It looks like if my ministry is more important than my prayer life, if my being for others is more important than being from the Father or from Jesus, I'm freeing myself from the pattern. If I'm more concerned people are going to say, good homily, Father, than whether or not I received it from Jesus... I'm freeing myself from the pattern. If I have time to take care of everybody else and everybody else and everybody else but I don't take that like little bit of time for our Lord to take care of me, then I'm freeing myself from the pattern. If I attempt to love without being loved first. So a lot of times in the spiritual direction I'll ask people, you know, what is more important to love or to be loved? In our very holy, you know, non-selfish way, we always say, to love. But can you give something that you don't have? Right? We can't give what we don't have. And so the first movement is to be loved, to entrust ourselves. And we learn in that experience of being loved by our Lord how to love others. And so in the, within the creation narrative, you know, that pattern unfolds. God creates Adam, and he puts him in the garden by himself, and he's kind of wandering around and learning who he is, and he's learning he's more like God than the world. The Lord says it's not good for the man to be alone. And he brings him a suitable helpmate. And after going through, like, you know, naming all of the animals, finally he casts a deep sleep on him, and he meets his wife. Somebody whose body is like his body, but not like his body. But when he looks into her eyes, he can see that she knows the same God that he knows. That she's a daughter of the same father. She's also penetrable and transparent. And he cries out, at last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And then... When they express their love in the most complete, profound, and bodily way, a third person comes forward, and they become a mother and a father. And the pattern is intact. When sin enters into the world, it corrupts according to the pattern. And so the first thing that sin attacks is our identity as sons and daughters. You know, our personal sin ruptures the relationship we have with God, and we lose our identity as sons and daughters. Oftentimes, the sins of others can rupture our identity as sons and daughters. So when I was younger, uh, I told you, like, my mom and my stepmom are first cousins, and um And my parents, like they oftentimes tried to reboot their life. This is why I'm always talking about integration and you can't just like leave that thing and it has to be integrated in your life. So they wanted to reboot their life when I was about four and we moved. And and so everybody who knew me up until I was four was no longer in my life. So this was like my grandparents, my aunt, the neighbors who took care of me a lot of times when I was young and my mom was sick. There was a family who took care of me. They didn't see me anymore, and we moved to this town. It's like 20 minutes away, but it seemed like 20 hours because we never saw those people anymore. Because I think my parents just, like, they were hurting. They needed to restart their life. They didn't want a reminder of the pain that they'd been through. That's understandable. But they knew that I'd be sad, so they got me a dog. Because that's what you do, right? Like, he's going to miss people. We'll get him a dog. And they got me this cocker spaniel dog named Casey. And I loved that dog. And the dog loved me. And the dog hated everybody else in my family. And so one day, my sister was trying to use Casey as if he was a stuffed animal. And he didn't really like that. And so, like, and, like started growling at her. And kind of snapped, but didn't bite her. And then one morning, I woke up and I walk downstairs, and I can see myself visually, like, walking down this green shag carpeting kitchen. Like, we had this yellow linoleum floor and a yellow fridge and a yellow dog, wait, the yellow dog dish isn't there. So I walk into the kitchen, and there's no dog dish, where there used to be a dog dish, and I'm thinking to myself, well, I got to, where's my dog, do I, we have And I went to the dishwasher to look for it, and it wasn't in the dishwasher. And then I started opening cupboards looking for dog food. But there was no dog food where there used to be dog food. So no dog dish, no dog food, no sign we ever had a dog. And then I hear my my stepmom calling me, like, Shawnee. And I go up the stairs, and I walk into her room, and she says, Daddy took Casey to the farm where he can run around and play with the other dogs and be happy and like crushed. And so a couple of times I asked, can we go to the farm? The farm. And my parents would make up a story. And so in that moment, There was kind of a wound, you know? It was like a sin of another. Like, I wish they would have just told me, like, we have to get rid of your dog because we don't think it's safe for the family and we'll make sure it's okay. But instead, it was just like, shh, nope. And so all these lies kind of entered into my head at that moment. Like, I'm not supposed to have anything that's just for me. My family's happiness is more important than my happiness. I have to sacrifice my happiness for my sister's happiness. I'm not really supposed to have joy in my life. And so those lies enter in around that event, right? Just kind of a stupid event, like stupid wound, all these lies. And then, as Dr. Bob Shute says, I sort of made an unholy identity vow, which, which I didn't, like, like put my hand on a Bible and make a vow, but my unholy vow was I will always sacrifice my happiness for the sake of my family's happiness, right? And this is where the evil one twists our thinking because that sounds kind of like holy, right? Like that sounds like a saint book that you read, you know, like young Sean Kilcali vowed to always place other people's needs ahead of his own. But it led to destruction in my life. And when I was in high school, I was the captain of our swim team, and we, we had, like, the last chance to qualify for state coming up. It was, like, the one thing where I actually excelled, and I actually had an athletic letter, and this was a big deal to me. And I was a senior, and my grandmother in Ireland that my dad hadn't seen in 20 years got sick, and she was close to dying, and he wanted to go visit her. And so he wants me to go with him. And it's right during my last chance to qualify for state. So pop quiz, did I even tell him that I had a schedule conflict? Some of you are like, absolutely. I wouldn't have told him, right? Didn't even tell him. And then we're over there, and I call home, and I'm talking to the guys on the team, and he overhears me. And he was like, oh, well, we, we probably could have come two months later. Right? Then I'm feeling like even more crushed. When I was in college, my parents got divorced and I was about 19. I was a sophomore at West Point when all that was happening. And so the first thought that entered in my head was I have to quit West Point, go home, and help my dad raise my siblings. Because I'll always put my family's happiness ahead of my happiness. So I'll give up everything for them. And I, and I was smart enough to get some advice about it, you know, so I went to people, and they gave me, like, this horror, like weird advice, like, ridiculous advice, you know, like, you have to take care of yourself, and you need to put your oxygen mask on before your neighbor's oxygen mask, and, you know, like, things weak people need to know, right? Not things like I need, like, that's weak people's advice, right? That's what I thought. But I ended up taking it anyways, and I stayed at the military academy, and then later on, my brother, I think he was about 12, the first time he got alcohol poisoning, at a party. Whose fault is it? This guy's. Because if I would have gone home and raised him, he would have never done that, right? Um, my sister dropped out of high school at 16. This guy's fault. My other sister dropped out of high school after 8th grade. This guy's fault. I have family members who have gotten abortions. This guy's fault. All of, This went on until I was like 37 years old. Every single time I heard about something going wrong with one of my siblings, I would go back to that day that I decided to stay at the military academy and not go home. I was convinced I was living the wrong life. Like in my head, there was like Sean Kilcully, Plan A, Optimum Sainthood, which I didn't do. And now I'm in Sean Kilcally, living in the muck, trying to was like carve out my chance at getting into the bottom rung of purgatory. <laughs> That's what I thought I was living in. And it went on until I was about 37 when finally I was like it was like this weird moment. I had been praying some deliverance prayers for priests. And um and I was in Rome, and I was really stuck at that time. I was stuck in this depression, and I really couldn't move myself to do my work. And I was binge-watching TV, and I had already binge-watched my way through One Tree Hill, which isn't even a good show. And I was on Dawson's Creek now. Just the young people among you are laughing at me because you know what I'm talking about. So I get to like the season where Dawson's dad dies. And, uh, and he's going to therapy, and for some reason the therapist is saying stuff to him in the show about how he's not responsible for things or something like that. And then like this switch flipped in my head, and I was just like, wait a minute. I wasn't responsible to raise my siblings. And it was like something lifted in me. And, uh, and there was this spiritual kind of reality that was going on. As that lifted, I, think I started smelling like flowers a lot. You know, and my room's nasty. Like my room at the Casa Santa Maria in Rome, it smells like Rome and cigarettes. And, and then, but it smelled like I dumped cleaner over. Like I couldn't figure out where is this like, beautiful smell coming from, which I really believe was the Holy Spirit kind of entering in. And from that point forward, I never felt like I was living the wrong life again, or I never felt like two people anymore. And it was, it was another, like, sort of movement of conversion as our Lord was kind of, like, healing what was wounded. And it was necessary that that was wounded because that was a wound in my own identity as son. Because if the pattern matters and we're supposed to go child, spouse, parent, but I don't have a category for child because I've always felt like the parent of my parent, then the pattern's always wrong. And it was one of the ways in which our Lord sort of entered in in order to heal that. And so that corruption that happens in the way we relate or that corruption in our identity it does follow the same pattern but so does our redemption. You know when our lord entered into the world he entered into the world in order to free us from our sin in order to reveal the fact that god is in fact trustworthy. Right that's what the crucifix means. Like when we look at the crucifix what do we see? Do we see the fact that God so loved the world that he gave his only son? Do we see the fact that even when I was a sinner, Christ died for me? That at my worst, he gave his life for me. And in every moment that he's watched me in my life, even in my worst sinfulness, he's been looking at me with love. That's what we're supposed to see. And for a long time in my life, you know, I had sort of looked at the crucifix and I was just like, man, I am a horrible person. Because every time I sin, it hurts Jesus. And I hope someday I stop sinning so that I can stop hurting him. And I keep telling him I'm going to stop hurting him, but I keep hurting him. So he must be really frustrated with me because I'm really frustrated with me. Maybe someday I'll stop sinning so that I can really make up for all of my sin. And then after I make up for my sin, maybe then he'll love me. In In 2035. That's not what we believe. Sometimes it's what we start to think because we were taught by Sister Margaret Mary of the disgruntled heart of Jesus, right? Who taught us that every time you commit a sin, you drive another nail into Jesus' hands. And she was only saying that because we were like an unmanageable class in second grade. And so she threatened us with like Jesus' pain in order to get us to behave. Sometimes she doesn't really exist. She's a figure that some of you had, that I can tell by your reaction. Right? But that's not what we believe. Like we believe that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. We believe that the cross is a place of mercy. We believe that the Eucharist is a moment of mercy. Like what does the Eucharist mean? Like, what does it mean that Jesus is on the altar in a way that you can look at him? What does it mean about you that you can look at Jesus right now? No, it means that from the beginning of time, God wanted you to be His children. 2,000 years ago, He sent His Son into the world to suffer everything that we've suffered. And to give his life on, a, on the cross as a ransom for our own sinfulness. But before he went to the cross, he took bread and said, this is my body which is given for you. Because he wanted to remain in the world until the end of time. So that 2,000 years later, you could look at the same Jesus who like looked at that crippled person and allowed them to walk again. And if that's all true, then the fact that we can look at our lord on the altar means that he really loves you like you're really lovable and i think sometimes when i talk to my non-catholic friends and and they challenge that the eucharist is the body blood soul and divinity of our lord you know my my question to them is always like well don't you think you're that lovable like why would you not believe that? Do you think you're not worthy? Like, do you think you're not that lovable? And that's the harder thing to believe sometimes. And there's different ways in which our Lord brings that out. And so, there's two scripture passages that I want to go through. I'm going to do one now and one in the evening session. And the first one is a story of a woman who our Lord enters into her life And it's kind of about her discovery of the fact that Jesus did, in fact, know who she was at every moment of her life. Like some of you told me, you know, I've never really thought about, like, Jesus' story about me. But, you know, this is what happens. So, in John chapter 4, he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sikar near the plot of land that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Joseph's well was there. Jesus, tired from his journey, sat down there at the well. It was about noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how can you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? For Jews use nothing in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God who, and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And so this woman shows up at this well about noon. It's her usual time to go to the well. Um, I get that. Like when I was in my depression TV binge watching days at the Casa Santa Maria, I would usually wait until like everybody was in bed or something and then I would sneak down, take the elevator to the basement and sneak through the like tunnels to the kitchen to get like the sack lunch in the kitchen and then go back to my room hoping nobody would see me because I had a lot of shame. So going to the well in the middle of the day is something you do when you don't want to run into people because you have a lot of shame and then you run into this Jew who isn't supposed to be talking to you and he says give me a drink and she's like you don't even uh, like you're not supposed to be asking me that question like why are you asking me that question and then her Lord says if you knew who I was you would ask me for a drink and then she's like you don't even have a bucket (laughs) like how can you help me you don't even have a bucket like you're not even prepared Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself with his children and his flocks? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I shall, I shall give will never thirst. The water I shall give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So I have this water I'm going to give you, and you're never going to have to come here again in the middle of the day, and I'll leave your shame. You won't have to hide anymore. And so she says that, give me this water so I might not be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. So our Lord proposes this to her. She asks, you know, well, you don't have a bucket. And then he says, well, I can give you living water and... And so she asks him for this living water, right? That's what we all do. We ask him, like, Jesus, will you take away this pain that I have in my life? Jesus, will you heal this wound I have in my life? Jesus, will you get these thoughts out of my head? Jesus, will you take care of this other thing in this relationship? Why do I have to keep thinking about this thing, right? We all have that. And then he says to her this, go call your husband. And come back. It's kind of what she has to do to get water. All right? Go get your husband. Which is kind of an amazing question. Because in her mind, she's just like, oh crap, I just got caught. Kind of as if she was, go- she was going on with our Lord. He doesn't really know what she's doing there in the middle of the day. What she's ashamed of. He offers her this thing and then he's like, Go get your husband. Go get the most shameful part of your life. That's what he says to her. So she says, I don't have a husband. Right, she's ashamed of her status. She says, I don't have a husband. It's not a lie. Right? It's not a lie but it's not the truth and it's not the fullness of her truth. So our Lord says, you're right in saying I don't have a husband because you've had five husbands and the one you have now isn't your husband. What you have said is true. And then she says, I can see you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you people say the place to worship is Jerusalem. Jesus answers, believe me, woman, The hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not understand. We worship what we understand because salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And indeed the Father seeks such people to worship him. The woman says, I know that the Messiah is coming, the one called the anointed. When he comes, he will tell us everything. And Jesus says, I am he, the one speaking with you. And at that moment, his disciples returned. Still no one said, what are you looking for? Why are you talking with her? The woman left her water jar, and she went into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I have done. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So in her experience, she has things in her life that have robbed her of her identity. She has five husbands' worth of things that have robbed her of her identity. Our Lord's known that the whole time when he encounters her. When he encounters her, he sees the whole of it. And he offers her something. He offers her something. Okay, so what do I have to do? And he says, bring me your husband. Which really means, bring me the thing you're most ashamed of. Bring me the thing you least like talking about. Bring me the thing that you're holding on to. Bring me the thing that, you know, you you don't want anybody to know about, including me. And just let, let me into that space. You know, and that's what we need to do. Like whatever we have in our own lives that have caused that rupture, to let our Lord into that space in our life. You know, letting our Lord into the space in my life of my dog story, it kind of looks like this. Jesus, what do you remember about the day that Casey disappeared. (laughs) And I just go into prayer. And I walk through it in my imagination with Jesus. So I can see myself walking down the stairs. I can see myself going into the kitchen. I notice that the dog dish is gone, and I start to be filled with this kind of anxiety and worry. Something's not right. I start looking in through the dishwasher and the cupboards and notice that there's no dog food, and I start to have even more anxiety and worry. I hear my mom call me, and I go up the stairs, kind of slowly, and walk into her room. And she tells me that Dad took Casey to the farm. in my imagination, I can start to realize those lies are starting to manifest that I'm not supposed to have anything that's just for me. I'm not supposed to have anything that's good. I'm not supposed to be happy. I have to sacrifice my happiness for the sake of everybody else's happiness. And then I look for where our Lord is, and I can see our Lord behind me, kind of standing with his hands on my shoulders, And when I turn to leave, he just slips his hands under my shoulders and he picks me up and he carries me into another room. And he just sits there with me and says, Sean, I'm sorry this happened to you. And this shouldn't have happened to you. And I will always love you. And I'll never leave you. I want every good thing for you. I want to give you a life of joy. A life of freedom. A life of hope. You can always come to me. And he just says that over and over and over again until I can feel myself settling down and able to rest in his embrace. And there's truth in that kind of prayer. It speaks the truth into that Kind of wound in those lies that I had carried and the identity lie that my mission in life was to suffer for the sake of everybody else's happiness. And it builds into the experience of my story with Jesus, the fact that he was with me in a place of great empathy at that moment of pain in my life. That kind of prayer, that kind of inner healing prayer. It is the place where we take our Lord and what He did for us on the cross and we unite it to whatever has caused the rupture. Whatever has caused the rupture. That's what happens when our Lord meets the Samaritan woman and He says, Bring me your husband. And then He tells her He knows exactly what she's done. And then she realizes that even though he knew exactly what she'd done, he still wants to give her life. And she's able to experience mercy. But that mercy is only experienced because he asked her about the thing that she was most ashamed of. And so it might be a past relationship. It might be a period of years when you were in college. It might be some kind of a secret that you're holding. It might be secrets other people held from you. It might be an overt wound of emotional, spiritual, or sexual abuse. Any of those moments, they're, they're the moments in which, like, that's what we have to bring to our Lord. So that we can experience His love to the full. So our identity can be restored in Him. It's the thing He came into the world to heal. And our temptation can be to hold on to those things or to not believe that he's interested in those things, to, to kind of say, well, I, you know, I know I was absolved, but I don't really feel like it, but I know it happened, so it doesn't matter that I feel like it. And those are the things that we need to bring to him. Yeah, and we can do that in our personal prayer, or we can do that when asking the prayers of another. And so I just invite you, you know, throughout the rest of the afternoon, to just, like, sit with our Lord. <clears throat> you now, as did that Samaritan woman. And recognize that he knows you. And he's just inviting you to let him into those parts of your life, or those events in your life, so that he can speak the truth into them. You know, he knows the truth more than we do. Later on this evening, there are some women coming from the Lincoln Equipment Team. They just do a prayer ministry. And and so it's also an opportunity, you know, if there's any things particularly that have gotten stirred up or are getting stirred up, to just go and have somebody else pray with you. And... Um, you know, and you don't have to tell them all the like nitty-gritty details of your life, but just to have somebody else pray with you. And uh, and so they'll be here this evening, and the sign-up sheet is still on the shelf. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord Jesus, you came into the world in order to make all things new. And we ask you in a particular way to restore our identity as your beloved sons and daughters to speak the truth into our hearts, especially in those places where we're carrying lies or deception, to break any unholy identity vows that we've made. And help us to just start over again with you, that everything we do will be founded on you, That you will truly be the most important person in our lives. And we may truly live in the grace of your resurrection. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.